just listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time of day you happen to be listening to this podcast. Welcome. This is Love That Album. This is the Album Discussion Podcast. And I thank you very much for joining us for episode 66 of the program. My name is Morris. And as I like to do on this program, I always invite a guest or two to come and discuss an album, which we like to dissect and talk about, you know, maybe the historical value or uh, the musical value of the album and where it stands in the whole context of the history of rock and roll. And if you've heard that show, the show before, then you know all that, so I'm sorry to bore you, but if you, this is the first time that you're listening in, now you're in the know. And welcome on board. Thank you so much for tuning in. And my, I have two guest hosts for uh, this program. Always a pleasure and a privilege to have uh, other people who care enough about music to uh, join me for a discussion. So I will introduce the first guest is someone who's a return visitor of the program. He's been on the show, uh, I think, just once before, uh, and that is my good mate from uh, from work. We won't say where we work because that'd be unprofessional. But Mr. Dave Blom, good yeah. evening to you, Dave. Yeah, good evening, Morris. Nice to be back on again. It's lovely to have you back, and uh, you've gone and selected today's album, which we'll talk about in a minute. What that is? Uh, last time we had you on, we discussed a little bit of King Crimson. Which was, uh, I think, your first time listen to uh, uh, in the court of the Crimson King. Yeah, and, was my first listening to that album, and, and I also uh, and the Flaming Lips you selected. Yeah, introduced you to Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots. Well, sort of. I remember someone had gone and given it to me years before, and you know, first time listening back, I thought, oh, I don't really dig this, and and then you know, when you um said oh, I want to cover this, and so oh, I better go back and listen to it, and dig it, I did. You know, so. Uh, so uh, nice to have a, a a change of heart after all those years. So uh, thank you very much for that. Um, and uh, before we talk about what album we have selected, I will introduce the uh, second member of uh, our crew tonight. And uh, this is a man, you will have heard me speak about him on the program. Uh, he is the co-host of a podcast that I've only discovered, I think maybe earlier on this year. Was it late last year? I'm not sure. But uh, either way, a show I really love. The name of the show is called The Stinking Pause. That's P-A-U-S-E podcast, a film discussion podcast. One of the show's hosts is a fellow called uh, Charlie. But the fellow who I have on the show tonight is his uh, partner in crime, Mr. Scott Phipps. Good evening, Scott. Good evening over there. Good morning from here. How are you? Ah, that's right. Yes, morning. It's <laughs> 10.45, Saturday morning for you. It is. It? it is not too early, thankfully. Uh, well, you know, 10, I, I think I think it's a gentlemanly hour. Would you not agree? Yeah, 10 it's 45. fine. Very civilised. Unfortunately, um, whenever uh, we do these podcasts, you know, with uh, people on the other side of the globe and the international timeline and all that sort of thing, I've found that there's usually one of us, if not more, have to be uh, up at fairly uncivilized time on my other show um, see here poor wendy 
is often left having to be uh, up at like 5.30 in the morning <laughs> to record. I don't think she you know, really likes that terribly much. But, you know, anyway, no, thank you very much, um, Scott. I'll, I'll quickly mention what album it is that we're covering tonight. And then I'd like to uh, get you to talk a little bit about the Stinking Paws podcast for those people out there who haven't tuned into it yet. But the album that we're going to be talking about um, on today's show, uh, which, as I said, was a selection from Dave, is one of the uh, final albums in the uh, slew of the period known as Britpop, and that is Manson's Attack of the Grey Lantern. So uh, I'll be asking you soon, Dave, to uh, talk about why it is that you selected that album and why it is that you love it. But before we get into that, I'd like to ask you both a little bit about what you've been listening to of late. First of all, I guess, Scott, for um, the uh, listeners out there who haven't had the good fortune to uh, download yet the Stinking Paws podcast, tell them what they've been missing and why they should be listening <laughs> and, and the format. Yeah, the Stinking Paws podcast. It's, it's a movie review podcast, as you can probably guess from the name, you know, linked to Planet of the Apes and Charlton Heston, get your stinking paws off of me. It's it's my good friend Charlie and I, who, as you say, unfortunately can't be with us today. And we chat for a good couple of hours every two weeks or so, and we review three movies at a time. Um, no general rules as to, to what we review, but we try to keep the movies ten years or older. We, we, we're aiming towards the classic side of movies rather than the newer stuff. Um, we throw in a bit of music, a few quizzes... General conversation and a lot of interaction from our listeners, which is always great. So, been been running now for about eighteen months. Episode thirty-four we recorded last week. That should be out in a couple of days' time. And you know, we're just working towards the end of the year where we're going to be broadcasting fortnightly. Hopefully, got a few you know shows up our sleeve ready to go. So excellent, excellent. And we were speaking off air about uh, another potential project that you have lined up for next year. Would you like to? Uh Spill the beans here, you know, a world first. I love that album. Tell us about your, your next venture. It's it's in its embryonic stages at the moment. It was a crazy idea that Charlie and I had that, partly influenced by your good selves and your love of music, we, we wanted to do some sort of music-based podcast as well as a movie one. And we tried to think of a format that possibly hasn't been done. And, and as we spoke earlier, that most people like a list or two. And Rolling Stone magazine over the past 20 years have done two top 500 album polls. And rather than go through them sequentially, one to 500 or 500 through to one, we're going to pick them randomly. So it's going to throw some real crazy albums at us, some stuff we've never heard of, and possibly some favourites as well. Um, possibly only a half hour format, and, and we're just going to just see how it goes. We're looking at possibly January or February when that's going to take the air. So looking for a name for the podcast as well. So as I say, still early stages, but it's it's something that Charlie and I are really looking forward to doing. It sounds like absolutely a, a, a treat. It'll be an excellent uh, an excellent show. I wondered, do, do you know, is, uh, is uh, Ad Nauseam by Derek and Clive in the top 500? It's not, but we may bring that in as a special guest episode. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be right up Charlie's alley. It certainly would, and I will not edit any of the any of the swearing that happens in that at all. <laughs> oh, you could talk about Derek and Clive and, and cut out any of the swearing. You'd not get much dialogue in them. There'd be nothing. It'd just be bleeps all the way through. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Actually, what I really want to do is I want to hear um, Charlie sit down at the piano and <laughs> sing us a rousing chorus of jump. <laughs> and I'm not talking about the Van Halen song here, folks. No, I know. Look up, Derek. I, I Derek know the <laughs> and, and jump. 
anyway, so um, no, that's that's really fantastic. Uh, I'll I'll be uh, much looking forward to hearing you do that. And uh, what have you got coming up on the next episode of? Uh, Stinking pause the next couple of episodes of Stinking Yeah, we've got two that I'm going to be editing today. Uh, episode 33 should be available as of today or tomorrow. Um, and it's our usual format of three movies. And we looked at Howard Hawke's classic Rio Bravo, which I believe is one of your favourite films. Uh, uh, no, no I, I, look, I, I profess I actually haven't seen it. It's one that I've said ah. I want to watch. That's, that's list, you know what? I remember reading a quote from Quentin Tarantino where he once said, um, when I'm dating a new woman, I show her Rio Bravo, and she'd better fucking like it. <laughs> but I, I, I'm embarrassed to say I, it's just one of those Pantheon films, and I've got a lot of Pantheon films that have uh, passed me by, but unfortunately that's one of them. But I, you know what, I will attempt to rectify that before I listen to the podcast, so I might see if I can track it down this week. Yeah, it's certainly one of Scott Clicker's favourites. I think he's saving it for Cat as well, he said, for a special occasion, so... It's it's highly regarded by a lot of people, that movie. Um, we also looked at Seven Samurai, because what we also do is celebrate the anniversary or the birthday of a movie, mm. and Seven Samurai was released in 1954, so that was our birthday movie for this week. Oh, um, oh 60 years. Yeah, incredible. But watching it, it doesn't seem like a 60-year-old movie. There's so yeah. much stuff that, you know, it, it went on to influence. You know, obviously The Magnificent Seven was based on it. Um, and Kurosawa himself was influenced by by people like Howard Hawks and John Ford because it is almost Which, like a Western. So I believe that um, uh, Kurosawa was uh, the longest time not really taken seriously in Japan because they said you tend to depend too much on um, American uh, American directors rather yeah. than looking into your own backyard. And I, I gather for that reason uh someone like Ozu was um held in higher regard than uh, than he was. But I think that's just insane because he absolutely took some of those uh Western traits and put the Japanese spin on it. And they, they look completely to me like um like he's looking in his own backyard for these films. Yeah, I mean we were doing some research behind the movie before we broadcast and uh we discovered that Kurosawa himself was from a family of samurai. Um, which obviously, oh, really? yeah, the, his father, I believe, actually was still classed as a samurai. Um, so it's quite interesting, you know, to see that he's taking those Eastern family references and, and mixing them with the Western influences that he, he grew up and loved watching on the screen. So yeah, it was, it was an eye opener for us. And, and Charlie has been devouring Kurosawa ever since. Um, I, I noticed, I, I saw in his uh, letterbox page that he'd recently watched, uh, Akiru, and that is like, if I, I don't think I've ever made like a top 10 films, but if I do, that's in it. Aikido is, uh, have, have you seen that one? I haven't, but I think Charlie gave it five stars on Letterboxd. Yeah, it's, it's, well, he's, by giving it five out of five, he's undersold it. At least a six out of five. <laughs> well, that's, that's yeah. he, he said, could I give, uh, Seven Samurai a six? He said, because he was totally blown away by it. And, uh, I think he watched Yojimbo as well. He's catching up on the back yeah, catalogue yeah. now. So, um, and the third movie, it's it's a bit of a stinking pause tradition that we tend to gravitate towards 1970s American movies. And for some reason, a lot of them seem to be set in New York and they're sort of cop movies or crime-based films. And mm. my choice for Charlie this week was The French Connection from 1971 with Gene Hackman and Roy Scheider. Nice. One of my favourites. Again, Charlie loved it. Um, it was interesting to see it after quite a few years i hadn't seen it for a while but it hasn't lost any of its magic i mean freaking as a director is absolutely phenomenal 
um, we remarked on just the whole use of location and the improvisation of the scenes and, and the car chase is, is well it's gone down in cinema history as one of the greatest car chases ever um, right and it was it was a great episode to record we sort of hit the big guns this time around with three major classic movies um, mm. and episode 34 which I'm also going to be editing today we recorded about two nights ago we're going to do a brief sort of Halloween tribute we're going to do a one-off special and we're reviewing The Shining with Jack Nicholson. Nice, nice. I, I listened to your um, substitute married with clickers uh, discussion about uh, Rosemary's Baby. It looked like there was a, a, a you gained a whole bunch of new fans as a result of that. A lot of people a lot who, of who hadn't heard your show before. It, it, it was quite a coup. Yeah, we've got a lot of new friends and listeners out there, and it really done us a lot of favours. Um, that whole format that Scott and Cat do of just recording one movie for about 30, 45 minutes or so. Charlie and I quite like it, and we're going to try and do that a little bit more often rather than rely on the uh, the two-and-a-half-hour extended specials that we do. So look look right. out for a couple of extra episodes over the next few months that we're just going to do one-off movies. Nice, nice. Okay, well, um, so if you want to find uh, your podcast, the listeners out there, you have to... Um be aware, it's Stinking Paws, P-A-U-S-E, not P-A-W-S. So go onto iTunes and search for Stinking P-A-U-S-E. Uh, or website, What what's your um At the moment, um, we've got a blog. Um, I'm working on a website, which is going to go live in about a week or two, which is a lot more user-friendly and a bit more involved. There's a few other bits in there, like our um, Stinking Paws Village Hall of Fame, where we, uh, we actually honour people that have appeared three times on the show actors and directors and composers things like that and there's going to be a whole page dedicated to them on the website but for the moment you can find us at thestinkingpaws.blogspot.co.uk there's a facebook group which you are a member of morris and actively take part and you can find us on twitter at stinking paws so we're there all the usual outlets terrific and uh dave you're there so we yeah i'm We'll be, talking, we'll be talking film with you. We'll be talking music. What's the story? What have you been listening to of late? Now, I, I told Ag, before we talk about that, what have you been listening to of late, I'd like to uh, just sort of reiterate my thanks. You dragged me uh, into seeing a gig with you a couple of months ago for a band which has been in Melbourne, playing around Melbourne for 20 or 21 years, and your um, reference to them was the first I'd heard of them, and I like to sort of think I'd heard of a whole bunch of bands around our fair town, but you put me onto Spoonful, and um, what I saw them on the night was just absolutely blew me away. You're welcome, Morris. Um, they are really something of a Melbourne institution, I suppose. Um, recently, I just saw the drummer Kip Warhurst's uh, band Rocket Science, whom uh, you're very familiar with, the lead singer Roman Tucker. I, I am indeed. He was uh, on my opposition team when I was on uh, an episode in the first season of Rock Quiz. Uh, I was with Renee Gayer, and um, Roman Tucker was uh, on uh, the opposition team. He was uh, quite funny and very talented. So there you go. Uh, the uh, little bit of footage that I saw from from that show, uh, it looked quite wild. Unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, the audio was a bit uh, in clip. But um, yeah, it looked like an absolutely wild gig that you went to. Yeah, crazy gig uh, for uh, Mick Blood from the Lime Spiders. Mm. Wow, fantastic. And uh, so what else have you been listening to of late? Um, well, I'm just slowly wrapping my ears around uh, Augie March's new album called Haven's Dam. 
Mm-hmm. And um, they really do have a nice sort of uh, George Harrison type sound uh, this time around. Okay. So when when you say George Harrison type of sound, what are we talking about? We're talking about uh, like all things must pass era, or we're talking about you know because really the the early stuff yeah, sounds more- like a mile away from from uh, you know where he went to like uh, uh, the the last well you know the, the Wilbury stuff or what was the last album that he put out brainwashed. I think a lot of those dark horse like cloud nine, those cloud type nine, of ones. Yeah. Did it yeah, sound more like no, that? No, it, it definitely sounds more. All things must pass. Okay. Well, yeah. No, I'll, I'll definitely be interested in giving that a listen. I've sort of not really given too much attention to Walking March. I'd heard a little bit and um, didn't melodically capture me at first. But um, but you know, certainly comparing it to something like All Things Must Pass is uh, high praise. So uh, yep, I'll definitely check it out. And definitely when you see them live, it's really a toss of the coin. Some some nights they can be the most fantastic band in the world and other times you just wonder if they really do care. <laughs> so you're comparing them to Bob Dylan, basically. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Um, also, I'm uh, looking forward to um, finally getting down to watching... Um, a little sort of mini-series that showed on the ABC recently called The War That Changed Us, um, and it features uh, the music of a little folk duo out of Melbourne called The Orb Weavers, who I've yeah, been you, raving about. You you put me onto them, and, uh, yeah, they're pretty fantastic. They are, they are pretty wonderful. Um, I, I'm trying to think. I wonder, I'd love to go see them play like if they're down the caravan, uh, the caravan club down my way. I'm getting a bit too old and too boring, sort of travelling to the north side of the city too much. It's a very regular haunt of theirs. The, the caravan? Yeah. I really ought to be paying more attention. But um, yeah, no, they the, the tracks that you played for me, they are really, really wonderful stuff. So um, yeah, if, listeners out there, go search Orb Weavers, O-R-B, W-E-A-V-E-R-S, and check them out. So anything else that you want to mention? Listening to? Yeah. Digging? No, no, just look, looking forward to the release of the new Spoonful album and uh, getting out there and seeing a bit more gigs. So presumably they'll do a big album launch, huh? Yeah, at the Spotted Mallard. Ah, okay, all right. Yep, no, I'll, uh, if they're on a Saturday night, I might have to join you for that, I think. No worries. All right. Okay, so um, uh, as I said, we're going to be discussing Manson's Attack of the Grey Lantern on this program. Uh, we're going to go to a break. Uh, before we do go to the break, uh, I'll now lead into um, our good friend Eric Reanimator. He, um, if this is your first time listening to the show, we have a correspondent from Ann Arbor, uh, Eric Peterson, aka Eric Reanimator, and he always does pretty much like uh, what takes uh, myself and my other guests an hour and a, an hour and a half to two hours to talk about. He's very concise. He'll talk about an album that he loves in ten minutes. Uh, because he's far more efficient than I am. Uh, but uh, this time around, uh, he's going to talk about an album which maybe, Scott, you have some familiarity with. It's a British band called The Wild Hearts and their album from 1993, Earth versus The Wild Hearts. Is this something you're familiar with? Unfortunately, no. Um, <laughs> I'm not aware of The Wild Hearts at all. This would be interesting. I love Eric's stuff, so it would be interesting to hear what he's got to say here. All right. No worries. Well, we'll go, um, we'll go play uh, Eric's segment. Uh, have a bit of a promo for another show and then we'll come back shortly to uh, talk about Manson. You're listening to Love That Album. Thanks for uh, joining us. 
Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. I want two. I want two, three, four. Now it's time for an album I love with Eric Reanimator. from the 1990s those are the bands that come to mind and the last of those the Wild Hearts what I'm going to be talking about today and their 1993 album Earth vs. the Wild Hearts formed in 1989 the Wild Hearts really took off during the 90s where their mix of Metallica style heavy metal with melodic power pop might seem a odd combination but if you go back to episode 44 of Love That Album, you will hear me review an album by another band that was kind of playing with that idea of the Galactic Cowboys. I talked about their album, Machine Fish. They were pulling the Metallica-style thrash heavy metal and mixing it with Beatlesque, four-part harmonies, and power pop melodies. And it should come as no surprise that the main songwriter, or one of the main songwriters from the Galactic Cowboys, Monty Colvin, who was the cousin of D.D. Ramon is actually a huge fan of the Wild Hearts. So the Wild Hearts cult kind of grew mainly in Europe. You'd find a couple people in the States that knew about them and knew their music. But as an underground sensation like the other bands I mentioned at the top, the Wild Hearts have grown and grown. And let's take a listen why. That's all she's ever done She's a thousand Florence Nightingales All rolled up into one And people take advantage But she loves her fellow friend What's the 
was their first album. It was released in 93, as I said, but it was re-released in 94, and then it was re-released again with bonus tracks in 2010. I picked up my copy while a student at Michigan State University in East Lansing. I want to say I picked it up at Wazoo Records. Um, I don't remember if I read about it or heard about it somewhere or the title grabbed my attention. All I really remember is that they had a used promo copy with a damaged cover, so I only had to pay something like $6 for it. Took it home, listened to it, and really didn't get it. Really didn't connect with me. Really didn't make any kind of impression. But I kept the record for whatever reason, and I would play it sporadically over the years. And as time went on, I met more and more people that were part of the cult of the Wild Hearts. And... Over time, the record grew on me, and it's one of those records that you put on and you listen to, and there's a couple of tracks that maybe hook into you, but overall, it's the experience of listening to the record. 
for a number of reasons, I haven't picked up their subsequent records. Uh, I had an issue with the label that they were on in the States. That's a long story for another another time. Maybe if uh, I have enough beers in me, you will hear it. Maybe I'll dig out the old Reanimator Records podcast where my brother and I talked about that label. But anyways, so I didn't pick up subsequent records. I've been tempted to pick up the covers album that they released at, at some point. He said, pausing the recording to check Wikipedia, that's a little Terry Frost moment for you. Anyway, that album is called Stop This If You've Heard This One, uh, Volume 1, and I guess it's really not an album as much as a cover collection of covers, including covers of, well, The Icicle Works, The Distellers, Helmet, Fugazi, The Toadies, The Descendants, The Georgia Satellites, Warren Zevon, and Soul Asylum. So maybe at some time in the near future I will pull the trigger on picking that one up. Like any good cult band, they also did inspire other artists. Talked earlier about Monty Colvin from the Galactic Cowboys, who has had a project called Crunchy that is very inspired by and is actually name checked the Wild Hearts. Also, Nika Anderson from the Helicopters, who worked with Wild Hearts frontman Ginger in a project back around 2000. His new band, Imperial State Electric, probably owes as much to the Wild Hearts as it does to the Beatles and Cheap Trick and the rest of those kinds of bands. What I think the appeal of the mixture of this sound and the reason these bands are all mixing the melodic pop and the heavier rock, not just the instrumentation but also the lyrics and the themes, is that it's an interesting combination, especially when you add the right kind of energy and the right kind of emphasis. I think that the Wild Hearts are a blueprint for a sound that obviously had a following or a concept, a uh, kind of hit in the right way, the same way that the mixing of, say, the punk and the metal and the college rock with some pop really brought grunge and that first bout of alternative music to the fore. So anyway... Bottom line is that, for me, when I think 90s Brit pop, I think the Wild Hearts. And uh, they're worth checking out, worth taking a look at. And uh, yeah, go ahead and dig them out. It's Eric Randmender, and I will talk to you later. Podcasts last over three hours. You have all caught
Balaban Studios presents A Stinking Paws. Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! Starring Scotland. Yeah, be prepared for me to have a little bit to say about that one. And Charles. If Leslie Grantham can do it, then so can we. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Stinking Paws Movie Podcast, available on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Hotter than any uncurbed passion since last tango in Paris. There's the Facebook group and you can follow us on Twitter, at Stinking Paws. You've never laughed more at sex or a picture about it. And download all our episodes at the stinkingpaws.blogspot.co.uk. Ah! Morrison, Dave in Melbourne, Scott in the UK. Where actually are you based, Scott? It's in the southeast. We're about 30 miles from London in Kent. Uh, okay. A village, well, not a village, it's a town called Gillingham that I'm currently in. And Charlie's just over the water in Rochester, in a place called okay. Strood. Um, yeah, it's it's like a suburb almost of, of London. Not too far, 35 minutes on the train. So find ourselves going up there quite often, Charlie and I, to go to cinemas and other things so yeah it's uh, an exciting place to be it's not not too near and not too far away from the capital nice nice all right so as i said uh, before the break we're here to discuss uh, an album from 1997 i did get that right didn't i dave yes you did Morris. very good uh manson attack of the gray lantern now yeah. dave boys out of yeah, on, the boys out of Chester. Boys out of Chester. Okay, so that's... Yeah, about, about 250 miles from where you are. <laughs> it is, yes. Yeah. I'm guessing that, uh, Dave, you were a big Rip-Pop fan back in the day. I want to ask, what drew you to this particular album? And in general terms, where does it stand against you know the other major practitioners of the form? Um, if I can be so bold to use that as, a, as an expression... I mean, because, you know, obviously the big names are every man and his dog, and I'm including myself in that category, you know, knows Oasis and Pulp and, and Blur, but this was not a band I'd heard of, and yet it's strange because this was, for one week, a number one album in, in Britain. Um, so, really, where, where, do you, where did uh, you enter the, uh, the, the Chamber of Manson? Yeah, well, um, the story behind my listening of this album was... Um, I was in a place in Fitzroy called the Red Triangle, which is a uh, billiards uh, pool. I know it well. And uh, the guys there tend to 
be rather fanatical about what sort of music they play and um, they were spinning this album and I think I got through uh, about track three and I'd heard the first first three tracks with my girlfriend at the time who's now my wife and I just thought this album sounds bloody good I reckon I better ask them what it is and um, I even sort of got through the fourth track and it just it just rang a bell with me I wasn't really a uh, huge Britpop fan it was just this album just seemed to to speak to me and by the time I got round to actually asking the guys at uh, the desk what they were spinning I was listening to Wide Open Space and I was just absolutely hooked on the album right okay well it's interesting that you make that comment there you know you're saying you weren't necessarily into um, what was generally known as Britpop I guess the question that we might sort of end up discussing I mean we'll still sort of be discussing the wide open expanse of what Britpop actually was but there's a lot going on here does this actually qualify as Britpop or is it a, a, a mashup with glam or, or should we be categorizing it at all I think you could um, just about throw this into the post Britpop type sound the post Britpop albums being probably more successful than the initial wave of Britpop albums, more because they weren't as nationalistic as uh, the early Britpop type albums were, and therefore they had more success in the United States. Mm. Okay, yeah, well, actually, yeah, that is a good point that you make because I blur uh, a lot of their songs are very, uh, very local, very British, and I think probably the comparisons that have been made between Blur and the Kinks are very apt. I have to say, I've never understood the comparison between Oasis and the Beatles, apart from the fact that the Gallagher brothers were Beatles fans, but I've never understood musically the comparison between the two, but Blur and the Kinks always made sense to me. Yeah, well, I think if you listen to the Gallagher brothers' vocals, you'd say, yeah, there's a Lennon and McCartney type sound there. Oh... Well, I I don't know that I see that, but you know, then again, what do I know? I've I've never counted myself as a huge Oasis fan, and certainly uh, Liam. I mean, look, you know, I I find stuff to admire in some ways. I've got a best of, but I don't own a copy of What's the Story, Morning Glory, or or uh, any of the other albums. But um, anyway, so the other thing that was interesting there about you saying that you know you'd categorize categorize this as post. Britpop. Now, what I wanted to mention was, uh, as doing some research for our discussion today, uh, I went and watched a film called Live Forever, which was a documentary, I guess, on the whole Britpop scene, but focusing in particular on pulp, Oasis, and Blur. But what they tended to do as well was to mark uh, historical moments in that movement uh, over the you know few years that it was around and that would be just adding up about four years or something like that four or five years um there's uh, they also show oh they, they interview uh one of the members of massive attack uh and then they also so they show um i, I, I might have a, a cover of blurred lines as part of that historical linear path from you know covering the Britpop era and then they also make reference to radiohead's okay computer um now trip hop as you know, massive attack was and um i don't know how you'd categorize okay computer but neither of them really would fit into what i would have classified 
or what a lot of people would classify as Britpop. But I found it an interesting stylistic device in the documentary to be able to say, well, we're focusing on this, but this is what else was going on. Because all too often you get a documentary where they focus on something in isolation of everything else that was going on. And I think that was a clever move to say, this is what else that's going on. But in in your opinions, and you know, I open this to both of you, do you think that something like uh, you know, OK Computer by Radiohead was a natural, the next step, or it was a reaction to Britpop, or maybe neither? Uh, we'll start with you, Scott. What do you think? Well, it's certainly true what Dave said. It's it's the second wave of Britpop. I think the high point was sort of between 94 and 97, sort mm-hmm. of between the release of Park Life by Blur and culminating in Be Here Now by Oasis at the early part of 97, I believe it was. And And certainly in this country, from what you were saying, Morris, about associating it with things going on at the time, current events, certainly over here, we were coming towards the tail end of a conservative government that had been in power for about 14 years. And there was a lot of change going on. There was a lot of unrest, as you can see in that documentary, things like the riots and things that they sort of pinpoint, you know, and and sort of point out amongst the, you know, in between the tracks that they play. Um, Britpop, to me, sort of, it didn't pass me by, but it wasn't something I was deeply involved in but I was aware of it because it was so huge at the time um, there was a phrase coined by one of the national newspapers and, and Call Britannia became one of the big buzzwords you know at the time mm-hmm. and it was reminiscent of the swinging 60s Carnaby Street and London um, from you know 20-30 years earlier um, Britpop sort of a reaction to gun, uh, grunge music at the time, Nirvana in the early 90s and the Seattle based sound were, were huge here. Uh, and Blur, Oasis, Pulp, as you say, were certainly, you know, coming to the forefront as long as, as, as well as some other minor bands such as Elastica and Sleeper as well. Um, mm-hmm. but hugely influential and it was a bit of a reaction. There was, there was a bit of unrest in this country and, and, a lot of Britpop seems to be associated with football or soccer because England were doing pretty well in, in the World Cup at the time and some of these songs were taken on as anthems and, and you know, just calling points for, for the youth of the day. Confidence is a preference for the habitual voyeur of what is known as... A morning suit can be avoided if you take a route straight through what is known as... John Scott Brewer's group, he gets intimidated by the dirty pigeons. They love a bit of him. Who's that gut lord marching? You should cut down on your pork life, mate. Get some exercise. Yeah, it's, it's very influential and, and very dependent on what was going on socially at the time. Right, well, the, the film certainly made that point. It said that... Um, there'd been long conservative rule was it you know 16 17 years and that is coming to an, uh, an end and tony blair was at the time uh seen as you know this going to be this big new uh dose of fresh air i mean obviously over you know successive years of his rule there was a lot of disenchantment with um how he ran his government but at the time he wasn't margaret thatcher or he wasn't um John Major, so this is always going to be something wonderful. And, uh, but I can't remember what 
the um, what the lady's name was, what band she was in, but there was um there was there was a, a woman who they interviewed who said that she lost heart with uh, Noel Gallagher, where he um, basically you know, Tony Blair had wanted to appear cool, so he invited a whole bunch of celebrities to come to Ten Downing Place at the start of uh, his inauguration party or something like yeah. that, and she said, "I can't believe he." He went, so... He sold out as such, mean, yeah. There was that general sort of feeling that this angry young man of British pop was, was you know, rubbing shoulders with fuddy-duddy British politicians. But but there's but there's the thing. I mean, the, the film, and as you've already gone and made the case, that it was seen as an end of conservative rule. So where there's an end of... I mean, it's certainly like in, in America, you get any number of celebrities who are... Who, who are get on the bandwagon i mean i know when time when uh, bill clinton came on everyone was rushing to be with him and when when uh, barack obama came in you had uh, bruce springsteen coming on board and you had any number it's just a common thing over in america but uh, to celebrate the end of conservative rule it's not like the, the um it, it's strange to think that someone would say right you're you're selling out by going uh, to a politician at all, which well, I mean, I guess maybe that's how I feel too. But given that there was this whole new breath of fresh air, as the documentary was trying to say, it sort of feels unusual that more musicians weren't celebrating it, if not for if for no other reason, the fact that it wasn't Tory rule. It was there was hope. There, there seemed to be hope for the future. So uh, it seemed unusual that she said, "Well, you know." Um, fuck you, Noel Gallagher, for, for going to 10 Downing Street, despite the fact that we're all supposed to be celebrating this. It's interesting if you look at this from, say, an Australian or an American point of view, uh, quite often the celebrities will be heavily involved in the campaigning itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, one only needs to look at the famous It's Time campaign here in Australia. To see the whole host of who's who uh, campaigning for the recently departed Gough Whitlam. Similarly, over here, um, the Labour Party and Tony Blair, in their campaign to get elected, adopted, um, I think it was called Things Can Only Get Better by D Ream. That was their anthem over here. And it was, it was, right. it was sort of a call to arms as such. And I think this is where, you know, what we've been saying that. The, the politicians and the pop stars of the time sort of linked forces and, and sort of spoke to the youth of the time. So let's get to Manson itself. Now, Scott, you already mentioned you know, about that, you know, Britpop being uh, some sort of reaction as well to the grunge scene in Seattle. Like Britpop, I guess, you know, the, the grunge scene was not my thing. I mean, it couldn't pass me by in the sense that it was so much in your face, couldn't ignore it. It was it was there, but at the time, Pearl Jam and Nirvana were sort of not my bag. In fact, really, during the 90s, it was either power pop for me or anyone whose name started with Mississippi or uh, Blind Boy or something like that. <laughs> but I found myself, like in recent years, with you know the thanks of uh, with Eric Reanimator, sort of rediscovering the Screaming Tree. Certainly, I'm a big Mark Lanigan fan nowadays. But um, you know, through him, I sort of you know sought sought out 
uh, so, you know, a couple of Screaming Trees albums. And even though that was sort of like laboured under the whole thing of Seattle grunge, I found that they had a bit more, for me, a bit more death. Don't send me death threats, listeners out there, and telling me I'm wrong. But it's just a personal thing. But I like the Screaming Trees, whereas, you know, Nirvana and Pearl Jam never really did it that much for me. Although, I guess nowadays, I guess I'm more, I'm more happy to listen to Nirvana, but Pearl Jam never really meant anything to me. Sorry, people out there. Sorry, John Ross. Here's something different. I, I guess it's the opposite for me with, uh, with the Brit pop scene. I still wouldn't count myself as an Oasis fan, or, but I've got a greatest hits and I, you know, I admire and respect Blur, I guess, for the Kinks connection. But as I think I made a, might have made note to you this week, Dave, because I think you'd probably been under the impression you've been telling me for months, we've got to cover Manson, got to cover Manson. I've struggled a bit with this album and we'll sort of discuss over the next, you know, however period of time, however long we decide to talk for my thoughts about it, Scott's thoughts about it, but let's start this off positively because I know that this is an album that you're really, really enamored with. So uh, you've already gone and told us where it was that you came on board, how you first heard it. So give us your appraisal of the album in general, what it is that it really speaks to you, songwriting, performance-wise. Just go for it. The floor is open to you. Okay. Um, I suppose songwriting, it has a narrative in uh, some form to tell. It's a little bit concepty, so it, I suppose it does speak to me in that sort of regard mm-hmm. it has a nice mix of the symphonic and the rock and they're they're really catchy tunes right okay i mean look i'll um i'll put this to you i was listening again today in the car to um, an album that is often cited as an inspiration for the whole brit pop movement certainly for the gallagher brothers and that's the first album from the stone roses Just listening to that again, it occurred to me that what I really liked about that was it's the simplicity of it. And I mean, I know that there's you know far more. This isn't going to be a Stone Roses show, so I'm not sort of going to get to any depth about it. But the simplicity of the tunes, the strong, uh, the strong melodies, and the fact that there wasn't it was an album that was focused on the band as a band, whereas for me, I guess the Manson album and i guess this is no crime because there are plenty of albums that i like that do focus on having a layered approach and and, you know they're really very produced but for me i guess the production gets in the way of songs i'd be very interested to hear how this album would have sounded if there hadn't been layers and layers of uh guitars overdubbing each other and once again as i said that's not a sin unto itself it's just for me i don't think these songs worked so much with that multi-layered uh overproduction approach but you but it's something that you love so i'm really still sort of trying to throw give me give me some examples of some songs where you really think it works and uh i, I really that you love I really do think the wide open space works brilliantly in this regard.
I think what you get with this is a song that's talking about being in the wide open, yet the lyrics and the layering really do make you feel claustrophobic. The lyrics come from all different directions in the mix. Mm -hmm. The sounds come from all um, sides and they hit you. And you feel like, yes, you're in a wide open space, but you're surrounded. Okay. I, actually, so I, I know that you sent me a link to YouTube to a, um, a remixed version of that song. So tell us about your feelings about the remix and remixes in general. Yeah, I'm not a huge remix fan. Um, I suppose this song was one that really did benefit from being uh, remixed, the Perfecto remix uh, by Paul Oakenfield. And um, it really, I suppose, enabled the song to take off in, uh, I suppose, the dance floor. And um, there was really sort of a whole big other scene that wasn't about the rock music, that wasn't the Brit pop. It was, um, I suppose, more about um, the ecstasy dance floor scene. Mm. Once again, I, without wanting to sound like a negative Nelly too much, but you know, the, the whole dance scene was also not a movement that I ever particularly cared for. But listening to this, I can certainly see how uh, it would be an album that would appeal to uh, the the, um, uh, the the dance music listeners out there. I could see where this would be ripe for remixes, or even it could be played on the dance floor without a remix. Do you, do you think that uh, Wide Open Spaces could have worked without the remix in that context? Yeah, very much so. They, they seem to have this sort of writing style that was all about pulling together little fragments or building layers upon layers or recording, say, four bars here, four bars there and meshing them all together. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm going to make mention, because I, I think when, when we first spoke about doing the album and um, you know, I'd gone and listened to it a couple of times, and I, I think one track that you said that um, you really, really loved, and I'll, I'll confess, even though, you know, as I said, this is not necessarily in the overall an album that I particularly cared for, but I do really like uh, the album opener, the, the Chad Who Loved Me. really adore that song too. The the simple two chord introduction, which they, um, I suppose, flogged off You Only Live Twice, and I guess with the naming of the song itself, The Chad Who Loved Me, from the being spy. from another James Bond film, The Spy Who Loved Me. Mm -hmm. So we've got a bit of Sean Connery and a bit of Roger Moore here, and the, the song itself being more or less pinched from 
the title track there, mm-hmm. the Nancy Sinatra song. And I suppose that was the first thing that had me hooked was the, the simple synth strings intro blending in with the guitar. And are they, all sen- done- are they hang on, are they synth strings? Yeah. Right. Well, I'll tell you what, they've done a, a, give a bit of respect there. They've done a really good job because it, it sounds like a real string section to me. Yeah, as as far as I can tell, according to the liner notes, it was okay. all done with synth. Okay. And yeah, the the simplicity of just the C major G minor combination, just it just really really works. Right. Look, I think it's actually a, it's a terrific start to the record, and you know the combination of you know that string section, be it synthesized or real. Uh, heading into the band, it sounds, and besides the title being The Chad Who Loved Me, the music itself in that sense does sound very cinematic and it does sound as if you're, you know, we're about to start a Western film. So that initial riff once the guitar player comes in, it, it sounds like something out of a, out of a Western. And I have to say though that one of the things I didn't like here, it's probably a criticism of the album in general, is Paul Draper's voice. It's, I know, it just, sort of a, had that affected style it's something you get in a lot of um, glam music and while i'd be you know foolhardy to say that it's you know false or or, or bad or anything it just it doesn't appeal to me I, he sort of has this affected sound throughout the album and i know that there's you know, any number of singers who you know won't sing in a natural way i mean i don't even know what that means because you know when you're singing you're not using a natural voice anyway but it, it just sounds like it's been extra affected and in this case it doesn't appeal to me i'll actually sort of make reference to a specific song later on when we get to it but he reminds me of a another uh british singer from a, an iconic british band of the 80s i'll come to the specific song uh, later on in the show but um yeah look that that voice sort of took me away from what i otherwise thought was a, a really great album opening and it's nice to see that uh, the tradition of the reprise in a, um, in a, a concept album, or even if it's not a concept album, is is alive and healthy because they uh, bring it up again at the end of the album, don't they? Yeah, well, they bring it up in, I suppose you'd call it the final track, Dark Mavis. Yep. It's interesting how with that track, it's really almost like a stumble to the finish line. You're getting towards the end of the marathon here and it it is like a stumbling across. However, with the reprisal of the original uh, riff, I suppose you'd call it, mm. it really does seem to close the circle on the album and it brings everything together nicely. We should sort of say, I guess, because you've already gone and mentioned that this is a sort of concept album. I mean, it's not a concept album in the sense that there's a story. We're not talking Tommy or 
or, or Quadrophenia or anything like that. But it's, no. I guess it's more like in the sense that uh, the Kings are the Village Green Preservation Society is a concept album, a, a bunch of characters, a bunch of like individual stories set in you know one area. That's at least the way I see it. Was that? Yeah, is, it's is that right? it's how I sort of feel it. It seems to be capturing English village life and. Um, I guess it really does have that sort of midsummer murders type feel of the location. You've got to be uh, wary of the various characters that you might sort of uh, see around the place. Scott, I'll open the floor to you on this one because you know I, I guess you know, here um, in the colonies uh, we have an impression <laughs> as to you know, the the feel of you know what you know, through, maybe through TV shows or literature or just you know a general history with England that um, uh, it, what would constitute something that has the British sound and uh, the quaint British story you know that we might see through um, through BBC television programs. But do you think that there's something valid that this album does represent a small British? Uh, village feel or, or are we talking through our ass no no it certainly does i mean it is a concept album in a way but it's done very tongue-in-cheek um some of the the lyrics are quite poetic um introducing these varied characters that you meet in this typical english type village midsummer murders is perhaps a perfect comparison to make because that was the whole feel, feeling I was getting listening to the album. Very sort of Miss Marple, Agatha Christie type people that you'd meet in one of her novels. Um, I just want to go back quickly, but what you were saying about The Chad Who Loved Me, that orchestral beginning was absolutely fantastic. Um, and from what you were saying, Morris, for me it was almost spoiled by the introduction of the lyrics. It just took me out of that particular track at one point, and, and I'm going to stake my claim on that particular piece of orchestral music and use it in a Stinking Paws episode at some point <laughs> in the future. Um, nice. But it's interesting, you know, you meet these characters, and if you look into the lyrics, and, and they're leading quite depraved lives, you know, stripping vicars and, you know, tax loss <laughs> and, and, and other, other, you know, tracks that introduce these people along the way. I'm just going to ask Dave, when do you think... I know the, the album was originally conceived as a concept album, but they sort of lost their way somewhere amongst it, didn't they? When, when do you think the album sort of shifted at some point? Uh, I think it's sort of uh, shifted in terms of um, the likes of Wide Open Space, uh, Manson's Only Love Song, those sort of tracks. Yeah. And what, what you sort of left with was, according to Paul Draper, not so much a concept album, more of a con album, he <laughs> described it as. <laughs> so it's the great 90s rock and roll swindle. Yeah, but um, you, you can see that it was more or less conceived or was going to be a concept album, and I think they just had a few extra tracks that just didn't quite fit the billing, but they've gone, these songs are too good to leave out. Mm. So rather than leaving those songs for a future album and revisiting them, they've decided to uh, more or less go with the songs that they had instead. So at least from a lyrical perspective, Scott, do you think that some of these songs could have worked in a David Lynch film? A British version of a David Lynch film. I'll tell you what some of them actually <laughs> reminded me of. Stripper Vicar, for a start. Do you know this 
Two groups of the 90s that I'm not too sure if you guys would be aware of. There was one called Space, and there was one called The Divine Comedy. I know The Divine Comedy through their songs, um, uh, songs of Love. I actually had a note here about it because they were classified as part of the Brit pop movement. Yeah. They don't really sound like anything else. No, no, but they reminded the, the Stripper Vicar in particular reminded me of something that Neil Hannum would have would have penned for for Divine Comedy songs like National Express, you know, where, where he has these characters on a bus and he describes, you know, all the, the goings-on and their history and their sordid lives. And Stripper Vickers almost smutty in a sort of seaside postcard humour type of way, almost like a carry-on film or a Benny Hill, something like that, when you look at some of the lyrics of what's going on in there. Um, I'm just trying to think of one there. When the vicar strips, he gets away with it. There's loads of different references to what this vicar's up to, and it's, it's, it's quite dark in places as well. This is uh, one of the songs on the album that I really did like, if more from a, um, a lyrical perspective rather than the music. I, and I can't quite work it out, but the, you know, the feel or the melody of the song sounds like something that else that I can't quite place, but uh, it did give me a, a really big chuckle. It, it's, it's a one-gag song, but still i guess it's melodically inventive enough and cute enough about uh, the guy writing to the vicar's daughter saying you know he went to confession but her old man was too busy getting into the all together you know something and real there's something very monty python-esque about that or you know, as well as uh, lynchian about it so i i do appreciate that dark sense of humor on that song and it's a real um thumbing its nose to authority in, in the way that it says, well, look, somebody of such such stature in the community can get away with being um, such a pervert. <laughs> <laughs> My favourite line, and he's making wine from water while he dresses like his daughter, and we know that he's a rip-off because we've seen him with his kit off. <laughs> I mean, you know what, that, that lyric could have worked really well, I think, in a Blur song. I think that's a... I think it's a very Blur-esque lyric, isn't it's it? It's just sheer poetry, that's what it is. It's fantastic. Um, so I, I just sort of wanted to move on just for a little bit from Stripper of Vicar. I'm actually sort of going back mm -hmm. to we were speaking before, Dave, you've mentioned about you know, the song that you find absolutely perfect, you know, Wide Open Space. I couldn't remember what... It, now I remember. it was That was a song I wanted to make reference to where I had... I mean, I guess another problem with, with the lead vocal. He sounds like he's going... And see what you think about this. He sounds like he's trying to sound like, is his name Tony Hadley, the oh, uh, lead Spandau singer Ballet. of Spandau Ballet.
very much to me like this could have been a Spandau ballet outtake or you know, one of their hits maybe from uh, from the early 80s. You, you, am I imagining that or do you think that sounds a little bit like him on that song? Yeah, yeah, I think there is a, a little bit of that sort of sound. Also, I thought a little bit sort of Bernard Sumner out of New Order somewhat. Actually, I guess the other thing that it reminds me of is because you know, he has that tenor type voice and he's very big into the drama, which Adley was. But it also reminds me a little bit of uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Now, regardless of whether it you know directly sounds like that, but I'd have to imagine that uh, those guys would have had to have had that Welcome, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome album their collections at some stage yeah you'd imagine that sort of sound yeah the production values are certainly reminiscent of what trevor horn was doing with frankie goes to hollywood uh, right. in the mid 80s another band that came to mind and i'm going to mention another track here morris it's on disgusting <laughs> That reminded me of Tears for Fears from that sort of era. If you got okay, oh yes, yeah. Did did you get yeah. that sort of vibe, Dave? I think that was very Tears for Fears esque. Yeah, the the very soaring vocals that they use, and uh, the, the long drawn out lyrics. Yeah, yeah, very much Tears for Fears esque. But even even Tears for Fears sort of went through, you know, a couple of their different phases. So, um, you know, they're they're version of Mad World, you know, was that electronica style, and then they sort of went all jangly, uh, Beatlesque poppy yeah. later on, didn't they? Yeah, and that's very rem- reminiscent of that era, I think. Disgusting is very, very similar. That's the first thing that came into my head when I heard the track. Right. Um, okay, so we've, you've already gone and mentioned uh, this track by name, Scott, but uh, I want to just briefly make reference to... another song I I guess I don't mind uh, like much of the genre that I've heard there's it's got this bold stadium sound 
which, you know, while it's not my favourite thing, I guess that sort of works here. The the actual singing of the line, tax loss, though, you know, not the rest of the tune, is definitely a tip of the hat to the Beatles, which you know, is, is never a bad thing in my book. Yet, the strange thing about this, and we, you know, we've already gone and mentioned the whole uh, concept of remixes, this song decides that it's going to become its own remix. So it starts <laughs> out like a big stadium rock song, and then all of a sudden it goes into a remix beat. Dave, what were they thinking? And do you think it's a good thing? I don't think it's too bad a thing. It's um, being able to get that repeating sound into your head, and I suppose being able to suggest that to any would-be producer with a laptop who wants to cut up their sound. Right. Uh, I think the most interesting thing about this tune was its actual film clip, where they actually uh, threw 25 thousand pounds in five pound notes in uh uh into a crowd down the tube <laughs> holy moly yeah I mean, actually, there's idea. actually something i didn't something i didn't think to do was uh look and see what any of the film clips were from uh from the album i might have to follow up on that yeah the, some of their film clips had been fairly inventive also very interesting listening um is much of their live material to see how they reproduced it live and generally they did, uh, I suppose, very good versions of their songs. Uh, there is a bit of a meme throwing around. Uh, there is one bloke who comments on every single version of Wide Open Space. Gee, the bass player never makes a mistake. <laughs> and this is supposed to be something revelatory. Yeah, well, I suppose it is about as simple a bass line as you can get. But... <laughs> I suppose by having the bass as it is, it enables the layering to occur and that sort of claustrophobic feeling to build up. Whereas if the bass was uh, jumping about all over the place, everything would get in the way of each other. Talking about tax loss there, Morris, um, it's easy yes. to see the Beatles' influences there, obviously with, with Tax Man, the, you know, the, the Beatles' song. But did you guys, as you were saying, Morris, it developed into its own remix. I heard elements of We Love You by the Rolling Stones as it went into that final part of the track. Go back to that. I, I honestly say I didn't think that ever occurred to me. Take I'm, another I'm, I'm listen. I'm trying to hear the song in my head. Take another listen, and when you listen to that that swirling melody that's in "We Love You" by the Rolling Stones, it becomes mm. Beatles into the Stones. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll I'll give that another listen mm. and, um, and and report my thoughts. But, uh, <laughs> no, I'm I'm thinking of the tune in my head now, and I'm still struggling to hear it. But yeah, but, uh, I'll, I'll give that I'll give that another try for sure. I may be wrong, yeah, but that was I'm... the first impression I got from it. Yeah, the other band that I tend to hear a bit in this is plenty of Pink Floyd. The way that they seem to have the uh, completion of the songs as being 
uh, I suppose, a little bit conversational, the way that they lead into um, many of the songs like uh, Disgusting. It just seemed to have that sort of Pink Floyd track-to-track type feel to it. There's a lot of ambient sound, a lot of feedback and, and sort of background noise going on in between the tracks as they mix into each other. I think that's that's quite evident, Dave, isn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, guess, I guess that um, that moment as they finish off the Chad Who Loved Me going into Manson's Only Love Song, that certainly seems to sound very um, uh, very dark side of the moon, just mm. as you know they go from uh, speak to me to breathe in the yeah. air, that, that build up and that scream, or rather, I think in Manson's case, is it a cat meowing or something like that? Yeah, that, that sort of sound. Yeah. And just, just wondering what your thoughts are of uh, the guitar playing uh, throughout. Um, just that ringing, soaring guitar-type feel. Look, um, from, a, from a technical standpoint, there's nothing that I'd fault from a musicianship perspective. But uh, once again, I think there's a whole lot of layering, a whole lot of overproduction, and I just would have liked to have heard these songs maybe with uh, you know more restraint. And I think where it's overproduced... I mean, I, I'm not saying I haven't heard albums, once again, that tend to go that way that I don't find appealing. But in this case, uh, I, I just found that the songs didn't get a chance to breathe. And I honestly can't say whether um, the songs I don't, you know, aren't melodically interesting. They, I don't find them melodically instru- uh, interesting, but that's possibly because of the way that they're delivered. Sometimes it's about the presentation. And the presentation here just doesn't do it for me so you know the the guitar playing itself is fine but i think that there's a lack of taste a lack of uh restraint and i personally think that given that so many of the songs are about you know comedic subject matter you know like we've already spoken about stripper vicar you know it's it's very small village sort of feel it's not big stadium thump your fist in the air i would have liked to have heard that produced with a bit more restraint a little bit the the humour would have had a, a greater chance to to shine through, but um, yeah, that's that's my thought. Well, also I suppose you've got to be looking at where they'd be playing to their biggest audiences, and this is music that's trying to be played uh, at Glastonbury. Right. Well, okay. So, I mean, they so they obviously this is their first album. It wasn't like they built up to this and all of a sudden they had a million fans overnight. So they had to cater to that. But you, you've got cases of bands played to um, to stadiums and then go and produce something that's far more humbled and far more restrained. Someone went and posted on the Love That Album Facebook page uh, just today about um, their favourite Springsteen album was uh, Tunnel of Love. And after you know the stadium grandiose that was uh, born in the usa to go to tunnel of love you know springsteen decided i'm not going to keep on with this big stadium thing i'm going to come up with um something that's a whole lot more personal and, and make a, an album that sounds like it's just by you know an indie uh, and like you know he'd already put out the river and and then what does he do next he um releases this demo album nebraska so uh you can still get a big time artist and certainly like manson this is a first album decided you know, th- they didn't want to tell a, a small a small story if that's what you're saying is the case and even you know we we're talking before about the stone roses that doesn't that doesn't sound like a big stadium album to me i'd be interested to hear what their next two albums actually sounded like because i'm totally unaware of them and, and sort of what direction they take from this big grandiose spectacle that they've released here 
whether they did tone it down a bit and actually go back to basics and make it more guitar driven or acoustic even. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Dave, have you got the other albums, mate? I don't have the other albums, but I've uh, listened to a bit of them and they did try to go more guitar based, more rock type sounding and they just didn't have the quality of songwriting and they were trying to, I suppose, piece together little bits of music, little bits of lyrics and it just wasn't as coherent as um, this whole first album. That, and I suppose when you throw in the pressures of uh, the record company were putting on them to get out material, uh, they all sort of, I suppose, collapsed in a heap, which is what sort of happened to the band as they were recording their fourth album, mm. which they they were reportedly most happy with that material as it was coming out. So... Um, if Paul Draper is listening, we would like to hear it, mate. <laughs> Didn't it end up like on a, there was a, I did a little bit of research and apparently there's a box set or there's going to be a box set. I don't remember if there was or it's coming and wasn't there supposed to be like a whole bunch of this material that didn't see the light of day for that very reason that's going to be on that? Do you know anything of that, Dave? Yeah, I, I believe that is sort of the case, but I guess we're going off. Uh, rumour and what the internet's got to say. So, Oh, the internet never lies, Dave. <laughs> yeah, come on. It's reliable completely. Okay, so, uh, look, I've got a few more notes, but I, I basically, I don't know, are there any final thoughts that either of you want to make about the album? I'll, I'll go to you first, Scott. I think this the final word should belong to Dave, but any final thoughts overall about the album or specific song that we haven't covered yet? Just in general, Morris, I mean, it's, it's a very ambitious album. Um insanely ambitious i think i read somewhere on the internet as they were describing it as um it's a, it's a nice snapshot of where Britpop was at the tail end of you know the hype and the interesting fact that i found out to give you some idea of where music was going over here in the uk at this time the week after manson were number one in the album charts the following mm. week it was the spice girls with their debut album <laughs> so we cling on to Manson, you know, just as a, <laughs> in a vain hope that there was something good out there. But I loved it. I mean, I've rediscovered it for the first time since 1997. I listened to it at the time and, and just forgot completely about the album. And it was a joy to listen to. There's some great tracks. It was a bit overblown in places, lost its way somewhere towards the middle, but picked up again with a great couple of final tracks. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed listening to it again, mate. Dave, your final appraisal, but I'll lead you in with a question. Do you think that the album still sounds fresh to you today? I think the album sounds incredibly fresh. It's very much um, timeless in terms of its recording values, and you can place the, the village feel, and you could say this was occurring in the 1920s, you could say it was occurring in the 60s, you could say it was occurring in the 80s you'd still have those sort of small-town characters applicable, uh, I think, for many years to come. I um, I love the sound of egg-shaped Fred and just the way that Draper was able to more or less um, base a song upon a nursery rhyme that he was actually teased with because, according to his schoolmates, he had an egg-shaped head. Mm-hmm. The one thought that I'd really like to leave you with um, was to the very peculiar 90s phenomenon of uh, the hidden track. Hey. 
Open letter to the lyrical train spot. <laughs> right. Um, which which pretty much the lyric of that was probably taking a dig at shows like this where we're trying to analyse the album. It's, it's very anti-podcast, isn't it? Yeah, but it, it's also... They, they produced this huge, almost concept-type album, had some very sort of serious lyrics, some... Um, I suppose very serious uh, messages that they wanted to convey and then they all say well it was just really a bit of a joke and it's it's almost unfulfilling in a way to actually listen to that track because mm-hmm. you've, you, you've just been wasting your time for the last three quarters of an hour we've just been having a joke yeah but I suppose it also highlights that they can see their own sense of humour that they can poke fun at themselves and say look we're, we're really just, just a band writing music Alright, well I think at that point we can um, say we've pretty much discussed as much as we can say about Manson's Attack of the Grey Lantern Look, despite my reservations about it, if you're a fan of music of that era and you haven't caught it yet um, search it out see what you think uh, as I said, you know, it's not my cup of tea too much but it's you know certainly not without uh, without merit I mean you know, I've already gone and mentioned there were some things about it that I liked but you know I've already gone and stated over the course of the time what my reservations were but it's something that Dave is absolutely passionate about and uh, Scott also sees some merit so yeah look go search it out see what you think um, I th- go on yeah I think also you've got to consider the sea of dross that was uh, released in the 90s itself the Spice Girls I rest my case <laughs> well, hey, was, was 97 not 97 was also the year of uh, OK Computer wasn't it it was yeah yeah so there there you go I, I imagine that um, you know we, we've already gone and said that you know despite being a number one album Manson are pretty much uh, it would seem to have been a long forgotten band and I wonder if uh, the attention being focused at a band like uh, Radiohead saying right we're going to take the movement in this direction nothing more to see here people uh, move on move on is why um, they were you know maybe never really paid that much attention to after that alright anyway um, thank you very much gentlemen for that discussion uh, I shall quickly make mention uh, of a couple of housekeeping things if you've uh, enjoyed the program and I certainly hope that you have uh, please feel free to send some feedback uh, the email here is rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au you can join the Facebook page uh, start up a music conversation on the page we're at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash love that album uh, what else if uh, if you um, listen to the show and you think 
I can talk about an album, then feel free, come on the groups, send me an email, suggest an album. Uh, and if um, you think you can talk articulately for a little while about an album, I'll invite you on. You know, we're, we're very friendly here at Love That Album Headquarters. Uh, I haven't really gone and put a, a grill through through uh, Scott or Dave. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a nice guy. Even my cat that's sitting next to me thinks so, as soon as I take the manacles off it. Um, what else? What else? What else? Uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much covered it. So we should talk about next month. So I, we're recording. This is October. I'm hopefully going to have this out in the last week of October 2014 out on the podcast waves, which you will know, of course, if you're listening to it. Uh, so November's show is another album, which I guess is big on production, but um, uh, in a very different way. We're going to be talking about uh, an American, well, no, they've lumbered into the power pop camp, but there'll be some debate as to whether they really were a power pop band. And the band I'm talking about is Jellyfish and their second album, Spilt Milk. So um, we'll have a lot to say about that. My guest for that show will be another first-timer, uh, a fellow who um, uh, is a, a Melbourne-based musician. Uh, he's a working guy. I mean, as we speak now, he's about to go on stage doing a regular Saturday night gig uh, in, I've forgotten the name, the, uh, the, the, era, the, the Elephant in the Wheelbarrow. You know that venue, Dave? Know it very well, Morris. There you go. So um, a fellow called Reese Lett is going to be uh, joining me to discuss uh, Jellyfish's Spilt Milk, their second album, unfortunately their last album. They didn't last beyond that, which is a big shame, but we'll no doubt be uh, also speaking a little bit, you know, just for the references' sake, about their first album uh, called Belly Button. But uh, the, the members of Jellyfish have uh, really had, even for only two albums, uh, their members like John Breon and Jason Faulkner and Andy Sturmer uh, you know, have had wide influence on other bands and have played on a whole bunch of other bands' uh, recordings and live settings. So there'll be plenty to talk about that. And whilst I can't say for 100% that this is going to take place, but last month when I recorded with Scott Clickers, when we were talking about the Neil Young Freedom album, we were going to talk about a second album by Canadian uh, husband and wife duo uh, called Whitehorse and their terrific album, called The Fate of the World Depends Upon This Kiss, which is such a great name for an album alone. It's worth talking about. But we ran out of time because we spoke for so long about Neil Young. So I'm going to see if I can get Scott to come back and I'll talk for you know part of the show with uh, with Reese about Jellyfish and just see if I can get a quick segment talking with Scott Clickers about the White Horse album. So we can get two albums in on that program and that'll lead into December. Time for our uh, Shooting the Shit special end of year special to talk about favorite first time listens of the year and it'll be the first time convening with the shooting the shit crew for all of 2014 i can't believe that i haven't sort of done one of those programs all year for those of you not familiar with the concept it's just where myself and uh four or five other people the regulars will be uh eric reanimator uh tim merrill uh jeff smith and john who the fuck is wilco stirrett uh, and we'll just be talking about our favorite first-time listens. Not necessarily favorite 2014 albums, although they can be included, but we just want to talk about albums that we heard for the first time this year, our top five or six albums, and it'll be, uh, no doubt, a mammoth show in uh, December. And what I'd like you, the listeners, to do, if you feel so inclined, and I hope you do, is to send me in a list of your favorite first-time listens for the year. I don't care if you want to send it to me in an email, then I'll read it out. 
or if you want to send me a, a an MP3 file where you talk for yourself about it, that'll be absolutely brilliant. I love feedback at this show because it means that, you know, here, here I'm doing a Sally Field. You like me. Um, so, yeah, any feedback that you want to send about your favorite album, we'll be uh, recording that early December sometime. So you have a few weeks to uh, have a bit of a think about it and get in your list, and you can send that to rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. I think that's all the housekeeping. Uh, so, um, once again, Scott, Stinking Paws, people can find you on iTunes and I, on yep. your Blogspot site. Blogspot, again, the stinkingpaws.blogspot.co.uk. Facebook group is something we want to encourage people to join and take part in actively, so seek us out there. And Twitter, at Stinking Paws. So what I might do is um, also put on a link on, uh, the, on the Love That Album Facebook page so um, people can follow up once they've gone and listened to this. But um, I really do urge uh, the listeners out there to uh, uh, give the stinking pause a try because, I mean, one thing that I really, really love about yours and Charlie's show is uh, the banter. It sounds like I'm there with you. You're at, you're at the pub. I want to interject, but I'm thinking, oh, no, I can't. It's a recording. But it really sounds like the two of you are in the pub having a pint and just having a friendly conversation about a film. And I just find that so endearing. And I know that Scott Clickers feels the same way that's really um just why we love it so much yeah, so that's, uh, that's uh, nice of you to say mate i mean it's, it's a shame that charlie couldn't be here today and he does send his apologies but uh we're both looking forward to a, a return visit in the new year hopefully oh 100 it is definitely going to happen we'll uh, uh I'll, I'll um come through through the whole bunch of suggestions or you two guys can come up with a whole bunch of suggestions we'll pick one or two and just get on with it yeah that'd be um, great so, Dave, any artistic projects that you want to plug? Anything going on? You putting a yeah, band I've, together or something? Yeah, no, I've I've got a uh, special one to actually plug for Scott. We've got one of uh, Melbourne's finest bands currently uh, touring, uh, and they'll be heading your way in about three weeks' time. They're called Electric Mary, and they'll be playing uh, Borderline in Ooh. London on the thirteenth of November. So give Scott a bit of a picture, Electric Mary, stylistically, what are they? Aussie rock. <laughs> I'm writing this down now, Dave, don't worry. Borderline, one of my favourite venues. So you understand, Scott, that Aussie rock is spelled, the rock is spelled R-A-W-K. <laughs> Aussie rock. <laughs> It'll be interesting. I'll try and drag Charlie up there. Fantastic. All right, well, once again, thank you so much, gentlemen, for uh, taking your Saturday night and Saturday morning to uh, join me on the program. It was a wonderful conversation. Really, really loved it. And um, I'll try to get this online a couple of days after uh, our recording of it. So that should be, um, I don't know, hopefully Monday or Tuesday uh, in this last week of October. And uh, once again, you listeners out there, thank you so much for downloading. Please spread the word that we exist. Uh, always love to have new listeners uh, and new participants, for that matter, on board. So um, we'll see you again in November for a little bit of jellyfish and hopefully some white horse talk as well. Uh, so um, uh, be nice to each other. Take care. Read some great books. Watch some wonderful films. Listen to some great records. Go see a gig. And um, we'll speak to you in November. All the best. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.